0: This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROC, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROC empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROC content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you're tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Wolwine. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. And if you have not already, check out the Nailed It Ortho podcast companion book that has all the notes literally To every single question that we go over in this podcast uh, on that book so if you guys want to follow along take notes do whatever you want to do and without further ado let's go ahead and get into today's episode
1: you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast
0: featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole Um, That is, again, the main thing, no Duchenne's muscular dystrophy that is X-linked recessive. Now, uh, what is the inheritance for Becker muscular dystrophy?
1: Uh, The nice part about the muscular dystrophies is they're all inherited the same, X-linked recessive. The thing with Becker's and Duchenne's is Becker's is like a low-grade Duchenne. So they have lower, uh, dystrophin. It's a later onset than Duchenne's, uh, muscular dystrophy. And, um, I think it's because the, the, uh, gene alteration is, uh, is technically or a, the, uh, the gene is, um, inherited differently. And so it's just a Uh, different protein, but a less severe form of the protein for uh, Becker's than it is with Duchenne's. And um, so the next one, um, what is the inheritance of SMA or spinal muscular atrophy and its manifestations?
0: So this is going to be um, autosomal recessive. Uh, Again, so it's going to be autosomal recessive. And so it's going to be due to a mutation on chromosome five Q. And this is going to be the survival motor neuron one. And I've seen that shown up as a test answer choice multiple times. So just know that survivor motor neuron one is going to be on chromosome five Q uh, and some things that patients with spinal muscular atrophy may have maybe um, uh bulbar weakness Tongue fasciculations. I uh, really know that one. Scoliosis, um, hip subluxations. Uh, those are some of the big things to know about sk- uh, spinal muscular atrophy. Now, um, <laughs> what are some, uh, what are some treatment options for spinal muscular atrophy?
1: I will never forget this question as long <laughs> as I live, because this was on my ABOS part one and <laughs> Again, sorry, ABOS, I know we're not supposed to discuss questions outside of the exam, but I had a question that directly said, what is the mechanism of action of NUSA-NURSEN? That's it. <laughs> that was the question. And I thought to myself, I had never even heard about this. And there was a lot of F-bombs and explicatives said <laughs> during the test at this one question Um But nusinersin, also known as spiranza, (laughs) is uh, a drug that has been FDA approved for spinal muscular atrophy, and it increases the um, uh, functional survival motor neuron protein. But the answer on the test is what it does is it alters the spinal muscular nerve to pre-RMA splicing process by inhibiting the splicing factors of oh. the RNA.
0: Oh, and so come basically, on.
1: yeah. So it, <laughs> it it facilitates the integration of, and I get it, but this is, this is what was on the test. It facilitates the integration of exon 7 into the mRNA, which enhances the full length protein to be um, expressed and made so that the SMA protein is, um, or SMN protein is, uh, improved. So, there you go. You guys get one question on ABOS, <laughs> Um, and then also you can do, uh, gene therapy, which is a very broad term for numerous things that geneticists do that, um, we don't <laughs> need to worry about. So, what is the inheritance and manifestation of marie tooth type one?
0: Yep. So this is going to be autosomal dominant and you need to know it's going to be a duplication of the peripheral myelin protein 22 gene on chromosome 17. And yes, I don't know, I, but I've seen that also pop up on at least some of the, the practice questions. And Charcot Marie tooth disease, which we talked a little bit about in foot and ankle Um, They're going to have absent uh, reflexes. They're going to have distal intrinsic muscle weakness. Again, if you want to learn some more, go and check this out in the foot and ankle section to, uh, to dive a little bit deeper into the foot and ankle manifestations of it. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. Just to speak one thing on this, I get it. It's a, I, and I've come up with stupid ways to remember things, but, um, CMT, Charcot Marie Tooth, uh, and it kind of rhymes with twenty-two. So, a charcot Marie tooth was pimp twenty-two, uh, PMP. So, pimp twenty-two at the age of seventeen. That's just how I <laughs> remember it, and I, I don't, I don't know why, but that I think it'll help you guys remember it. That if it's a charcot Marie tooth uh, question, <laughs> just think pimp twenty-two and chromosome seventeen.
0: I'm telling you, somebody written like three or four months after the, the board, somebody's going to message us and be like, man, pim 22. PIM <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, awesome. So what 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 condition, we're just kind of going through some of these neuromuscular conditions, but on what condition is noted by multiple rigid joints with static contractures?
1: That would be arthrogryposis multiplex congenita, and that's all I know about that condition. So- next what condition is noted by ataxia a reflexia weakness and a positive extensor plantar response
0: yeah that's that's kind of babinski um so that's going to be frederick's ataxia again so ataxia a reflexia weakness and a positive extensor plantar response is going to be frederick's ataxia and they may um have you know they may also have cardiomyopathy diabetes and deafness is going to be common and this is another thing you need to know it's a mutation uh is going to be a repetition of the gaa in the fxn gene on chromosome 913 i know that was a lot you know these are just again going to be things that like a couple days before the test or whenever just hammer these as many times as you can in your head to try to remember these small facts but uh, frederick's ataxia uh, again is going to be noted by uh, ataxia a reflexia weakness, um, and a positive extensor plantar response. Uh, they may be di- have diabetes, um, cardiomyopathy, and deafness is, is going to be common. And this is going to be a mutation and a repetition of GAA in the FN- FXN gene on chromosome 913. It's like, it's like Huntington's. I remember Huntington's was one of those trinucleotide repeats. So this is another trinucleotide repeat, again, Frederick's ataxia. And uh, switching gears and, and going into some limb growth and congenital deformity. So as everybody knows, like, I think we've covered most of the high yield spine, I mean, pediatrics things. And so now we're kind of getting into like the nitty and gritty, you know, all these kind of syndromes and dysplasias and things that we need to uh, try to remember to get those I guess extra points on the tests. But a lot of this is just going to be multiple repetition and seeing this thing multiple, multiple times. Um, but so. What lang length, length discrepancy uh, length is typically tolerated?
1: That will be up to two centimeters um, can be uh, tolerated by most and um, and then if uh, uh, if it is symptomatic, you can always go to a shoe lift, which, up to two centimeters. I mean, if you're doing one centimeter, you can typically treat that in with an inside shoelift so they can still buy normal shoes. They're just using a special made insole. Um, people think that even under two centimeters, you can have back and hip pain, but if, if they're big, uh, deformities and, uh, big discrepancies, then those are the ones that they're going to be, uh, very
0: uncomfortable with walking unless they have the custom made shoes so This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons created for US residency programs and free to residents. ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to rock content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aos.org.
1: At what ages do we assume on a test that growth ends?
0: So 14 for girls, 16 for boys. So we know in real life that this is not true, but I guess for testing purposes, that's the age we're assuming um, that boys and girls are going to stop growing again because it's going to be like scenarios where you're going to have to kind of calculate the amount of time that is remaining for this person to grow. And we'll talk about some of these different areas that we get bony skeletal growth. Um, Oh, here we go. Yeah. So, how many millimeters of growth is contributed from the different parts of the lower extremity?
1: Uh, This is vital to those calculations that you were talking about. Um, The proximal femur and distal tibia are three millimeters each. Um, The distal femur is where we grow the most, and that is nine millimeters uh, per year. And then the proximal tibia is approximately six millimeters per year. So um, for the upper extremity, the proximal humerus uh, is the greatest and the distal radius is the greatest where the elbow is the least and the lower extremity, the knee is the greatest with the distal femur and proximal tibia uh, being the most. So just remember the distal femur is nine, proximal tibia is six. And then the proximal femur and distal tibia are three each. And what are some of the treatment options for limb length discrepancies?
0: Yep. So less than two centimeters, you can treat it with nothing. Or if they really need it, you can give them a shoe lift. If the predicted leg length discrepancy is greater than two between five centimeters, that's when you're talking about doing something operatively. So like the situation will give it, it'll give it like a 13-year-old kid with like some distal femur um fracture and they're gonna try to have you estimate how much length or how much they would grow over the next we'll say three years. So if the distal femur grows at nine millimeters a year times three years, the expected um the expected like defector the expected not growth would be with 27 millimeters or greater than two centimeters so they would expect you to do something in the case again where it's between two and five centimeters that could be something like a contralateral epiphysiodesis, or pretty much you stop the growth on the other side because again you predict that in three or four years that they'll have a large length large length length discrepancy Um, other things that you can do if this happened years and years ago um, and then they're now skeletal mature and they have a leg length discrepancy of four. Um, you could do a shortening type of procedure. Um, if they have a leg length discrepancy or predicted leg length discrepancy greater than five or six millimeters um, in these skeletal mature patients, you may talk about kind of some of these limb lengthening um, things that you can do so there are a lot of expensive implants out there and a lot of cool technology where you where you can put it in a a nail and it can expand and lengthen the limbs Uh, you can do an x-fix or an osteotomy you know i was actually watching this anime show called baki on netflix and they like perfectly described um what was it like they perfectly described the like the osteotomy and like lengthening for uh like on this show they described using an x-fix and like how how many millimeters of bone would grow and i was like man this is crazy for an anime show how like accurate this was obviously they were they were trying to talk about like people growing their limbs so they could fight and be better with that but wow uh, it was uh it was surprisingly very accurate i was like wow man that's that's pretty good bunch Um, of (laughs) nerds oh man uh yeah so again uh less than two centimeters don't do anything or a shoe lift. If you predict it'll be between two and five centimeters, you can do a contralateral Um, So, how long does physiologic varus and valgus go on for? You know, they're little kids and they're one years old, and, and everybody's like, oh, their knees look so crazy. And you're like, calm down, it's going to change or it's going to be better. But how long does physiologic varus and valgus go on for at the knee?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for those of you that have kids, uh, You'll notice because you see your kid walking around from age one to two and you're like, holy cow, they look like they've been riding horses their whole life. They're varus. And so at around two, two and a half, um, their physiologic varus tends to go away and then their knees will straighten out. And by three, they typically have straight legs. But then at around ages four uh, to four and a half, they'll go into uh, physiologic valgus. And then they will rebalance out at around five to six years old and have straight limbs. So um, that's basically uh, going to key us into the next set of kind of topics we're going to discuss. So um, if the question describes a four-year-old with varus at the knees, you're already thinking this isn't normal because physiologic varus ends at two. And if they're talking about a a 10 year old with knock knees or genu valgum, you also know that that's not normal because physiologic valgus ends around five to six years old. So,
0: yeah. So, so I guess just continuing and uh, and moving forward. So uh, what is the the most common cause of now pathologic uh, genu varum? You know, we talked about, you know, physiologic varus and valgus and you know varus is for around 2 years and valgus you know and 4 or 5 6 years but what about um what the most uh common cause of pathologic genu varum is yeah this will
1: be uh bone disease uh and it's basically where you um where you have this deformation of the proximal tibia it's usually a proximal tibial lesion and Uh, You can have infantile and adolescent, uh, but in infants, um, they get pretty much excessive uh, medial pressure uh, on the uh, physis and the epiphysis, and you then develop like a osteochondrosis and a physio bar uh, across that because there's so much pressure on that medial side that the body's natural way to kind of contain that pressure is to form a bony bridge, but then they get continued growth of the lateral side and they continue to develop this bad proximal tibia vera. And then in adolescence, um, they get this varus thrust sort of gate um, and an inhibition of the medial ficeal growth, which is uh, kind of what I was talking about with the Huter-Volkman principle where you get that increased pressure and, um, on the bone, and it the bone is going to remodel in result of the kind of external stresses that are placed on it. Um, but let's say you have a, because we know that physiologic varum is normal for kids about two years old, um, but if you got a four-year-old and they have pretty severe uh, uh, varum, what are some of the uh, x-ray findings you're looking for?
0: Yeah. So you can look at the metaphyseal diaphyseal angle, which I've seen in some questions, they just give it to you. Um, like they'll say the met, um, met, metaphyseal diaphyseal angle is 20, 25 degrees, or they may show you um, an AP of like the limb or the leg and show you like a line going up the diaphysis and a line going up the metaphysis and show you that angle in between that. So just know that. Um, but if that angle um, is less than uh if they're less than 10 years old, um, there is a 95% chance that the bone will resolve, uh, for, again, this blouse disease, um, I'm sorry, if that, if the angle is less than 10 degrees, there's a 95% chance that the Boeing is going to resolve if the, the angle. This met- metabaseal diaphyseal angle is greater than 16 degrees. There's a 95% chance that the Boeing will progress. So again, on, on Blount's disease, you're looking for the metabaseal diaphyseal angle. If it's less than 10, uh, uh, you have a 95% chance that Boeing is going to resolve. If you're great, if it's greater than 16 degrees, there's a 95% chance that the Boeing will progress and so that being said, what is the treatment for uh, Blount's disease uh, or this kind of tibia vara? Uh,
1: yeah, so the infantile form, or more the two to three year olds with mild disease, you can always try the. Um, I think it's a knee, ankle, foot orthosis, and what that is going to do is it's uh, what I think about is the uh, is the Forest uh, Forest Gump uh, bracing for the legs, where they have a brace that goes kind of all the way from their thigh down to their foot and is going to help um, not necessarily re-straighten the legs, but it's going to prevent further collapse so that their um, their body doesn't notice that increased medial compartment overload. Um, if they are greater than three years old and they have severe disease, you um, mm as you described above with that metaphyseal, diaphyseal angle, um, you're going to do a surgical overcorrection with a uh, proximal tibia osteotomy and a bar resection if the physeal bar is present. And you want to do a surgical overcorrection. You really want to make that a extra valgus tibia so that as the proximal tibia continues to grow, that lateral side is still going to grow like it's supposed to, and it will slightly go back into a little bit of varus, but at least it won't be as significant of a varus as it had before. And then uh, for the adolescent blounts, um, <clears throat> if there's uh, about a year uh growth re- remaining, um you can do a hemi uh, epiphysiodesis of the lateral uh side to uh kind of keep them where they're at um if it is a severe deformity um then you are going to want to just do a proximal tibia osteotomy and um basically what that's going to do is it's you're you're not going to overcorrect nearly as much as you would for a much younger child Um, But if they still have about a year, year and a half of growth left, you do want to overcorrect a slight bit. But the questions um, you get on ABOS or the OIT, they're not going to necessarily uh, ask you, are you going to overcorrect by three degrees, five degrees or seven degrees? They're not going to get that specific. So um, just know that for less severe deformities, you can always try Bracing or hemi-epiphysiodesis for more severe uh, deformities. You're going to do a proximal tibia osteotomy, um, and then on the kind of other side of the knee, what's the treatment for a genu valgum?
0: Yeah, so again, uh, most of these um, should should uh, you can resolve, you know, so you can observe most of these, and it shouldn't really increase after seven years of age. So you can observe most of the genu valgum, um, but if you do need to operate, some of the options are. Very similar, like a hemiphyphiodesis or a varus-producing osteotomy if it is severe and they're a little bit older. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the New Ortho podcast. I hope that you all enjoyed some, and um, we'll see you all next episode.